The following Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, June 8th, 2020. The woman in your life will do what she must do to comfort you and calm you down and let you rest now. The woman in your life, she can rest so easily. She does everything you do because the woman in your life is you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Women's Spaces. My name is Elaine B. Holt, and I'm your host. Wow, what a week it's been. You know, is the mic on, Ken? What a week this has been. I just cannot believe it. I mean, just so many things have happened. I mean, I'm, I'm still spinning when I think about it, particularly here in Santa Rosa. I mean, we've had nonstop protests. And it's, re- it's really interesting. I, I got an email. I got an email from my niece, uh, Yulon. Uh, Yulon, uh, we adopted Yulon, my brother did, from, uh, from Yulon, China. And oh my goodness, she's 23 years old now. And I am so, so proud of her. And, you know, she wrote me a, a whole dissertation about how she felt. And I just want to read one paragraph to give you an idea of, of what, what she was thinking about. If you are more upset about the destruction of property over the destruction of human lives, you need to set your priorities. You can rebuild a store, but you cannot bring someone back to life. Is is looting and rioting fully condoned? Maybe not. And a lot of the destruction is actually being done by white people taking advantage of the situation. But did peaceful protests work in the past? Now, she uses this as an example. No. Colin Kerpeknik peacefully knelt during the national anthem, and he hasn't played in the NFL since. Spare me your comments about he was disrespecting the flag. If you would rather vehemently support a piece of cloth over recognizing the police brutality that exists in America, then again, you need to check your priorities. That is, I mean, she's a millennium, and it's just amazing, amazing reading what she had to say. One other thing she suggests, educate yourself, watch movies, learn history. This is from the, from the let's see, from the typing uh, exception or the typing uh, overview of what is going on. And I'm really, Yolanda, really a shout-out to you and to your generation for all the things that you are doing right now, particularly standing up to what you consider wrong. And it's just amazing. So thank you. And there's another thing that another thing that I found and that I thought is very interesting. It this is a quote from Martin Dr. Martin Luther King. And I think it's really important, you know, our history our history is our strength. You know, and when I found this, it was to me it was stunning. Here's what Dr. King said. Let me say, as I have always said, and I will continue to say, that riots are socially destructing and self-defeating. But in this final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. A riot is the language of the unheard. And I think there are many, many people that feel that we are being unheard. And like Yulon said in the past comment that I made with Colon uh, Picnic, that was a... A peaceful protest. He kneeled 
to bring attention to the fact that, yes, black lives matter and they are being killed in the street. And we saw a perfect example of that over the last two weeks. It's stunning what is going on in this country. Well, I have two special guests for this show. Uh, Joining me on the phone will be Dr. Kim D. Hester Williams, a professor of literature at Sonoma State University. She teaches African-American literature from the early to the contemporary period. Additionally, she's affiliate uh, faculty member of the American Multicultural Studies Department. And a little bit of a reminder, I had uh, Dr. Uh, Williams on on uh, May, uh, May 11th and course like always we ran out of time and i could not i could not finish the interview so i invited her on for a second time and actually the timing is absolutely perfect so she'll be the second guest on and also joining me on the phone who's already in the queue is susan lamont susan is a longtime peace and social activist who is currently affiliated with sonoma county green party police brutality coalition and veterans for peace uh we will be talking about the november 2019, there was a proposed uh, ordinance uh, for the November 2020 ballot, uh, ordinance number F. PPC number 1422712 and the reason that they went out to try to get 30,000 signatures was because the Board of Supervisors refused to put it on the ballot themselves which could have been saved a lot of ang- a lot of aggravation and a lot of problems but you know as citizens do they step up to the plate and now they're taking a different route so I'm going to bring Susan on the air now Susan are you there I am indeed well I welcome Welcome once again to Women's Spaces, and I'm really happy that you had you were able to come back again for a second time. So how were the protests? Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what happened here in Sonoma County? Well, I'm, I, being 72 and recovering from cancer, I'm not out a whole lot. <laughs> so I organized one, one vigil very early on, and I have not been to the other protests since simply following them through people. I know who are there and then through the news and and uh, by seeing a whole lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, so I'm glad I've always said that we have been too um, complacent that we we hold one protest about something and and we say, but it didn't change. Oh well, protest doesn't work. And I've always said, no, protest doesn't work because we don't keep it up. And so I am so grateful to all the people out there who are keeping it up and that's the only way that it can work it's what we found uh, in terms of uh, the calling of andy lopez we had to keep coming back and coming back and coming back and getting louder and getting louder and louder and louder exactly (laughs) before the before the the supervisors would agree to do anything they would have done nothing if if that hadn't happened so it's definitely about not being heard and it's about saying, I'm sorry, we're going to be heard this time. And it looks like there's that possibility this time. And I'm really grateful to the people who are doing that. Oh, yes. And I mean, taking the chances, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the other things that are going on. Well, the reason you came back for the second time here is today we are going to talk about the Independent Office of Law Enforcement and Outreach, IOLERA. Uh, you know, which prior to the uh, the pandemic, you were trying to get 30,000 signatures to put an initiative on the ballot. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative and also uh, give us a little overview of what IOLERA is? Okay. Uh, first, um, IOLERA um, was created 
uh, after Andy Lopez was killed, and the intention of the task force that recommended its creation was to have serious oversight of what happened to the sheriff's office. First off, I have to say, because from all the emails and Facebook messages I get, many, many people are very confused and lump all law enforcement in Sonoma County in one box, and it's not. It's a whole bunch of different departments and offices. So the sheriff's office is completely different from the Santa Rosa Police Department. And if you control one, you are not controlling the other. So um, this particular ordinance and IOLARO itself relate to the sheriff's office. So that I just want to be clear about that. And uh, it, it was to to try to get citizens some real control and some real ability to have input in the sheriff's office and to investigate the sheriff's office when it improperly investigates itself. And that was refused to us by the Board of Supervisors. So the result is you end up with an organization that can look at an investigation that is done by the sheriff's office, say of a killing, um, and you only get to see the evidence they give you. And then you can look at it. In this case, it was the director who does that, Cherry Street, uh, originally, now Carlene Navarro. You can only look at the evidence they give you. You can ask for more. They don't have to give it to you. And you can't do any investigating on your own. And you can just turn an opinion back and say, well, we didn't. We think you didn't do such and such right, maybe, you know. And then the sheriff doesn't have to listen to you at all, which in most cases he does not. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. We just had a horrific issue where this young man, I guess they went to the house. I was watching the Uh films and I was, I, I mean, it went beyond me. And he was attacked by one of the dogs. Uh, one of the uh, sheriff's dogs and the trainer for some reason could not get the dog off the man's leg well then what ended up happening when the police report came in they said that he was resisting arrest and our district attorney uh, Jill Ravish uh, decided that he was not resisting arrest and they can move on and and I guess there's another well, lawsuit well first she decided he was first, first she, she was going to prosecute him and then there was such an outcry that's probably the reason why she why she? Why the charges got dropped? Well, the most because important, she, the most important thing. However, it got to, however, it got yeah. to her desk. It, it it was reversed, and the man is able to get his his day in court, so to speak. When well, you, that's not the see to me. That's not the most important part. The most important part is that Jill Ravage was prepared to, to prosecute him. That's that's I, that's where the where the flaw is. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't hear I didn't hear that part. Oh, that that Jill Ravage within two days had decided this guy was going to be prosecuted and what if if you successfully prosecute someone for resisting arrest that person cannot sue you and collect damages in the future oh yeah oh Oh, okay that gives me that when f carrillo broke into a woman's house it took a month to come up with a charge because they were trying to find one he could evade. So we're talking about a power system here. We're talking about this black guy who they want to shut up, 
and there's Efren Carrillo, who's a supervisor, who they wanted to get off the hook. And that's how law enforcement works in this county. So that's how the DA's office works. That's how the sheriff's office works. So the question I have is, with this ordinance, would that have changed anything? What, how, if we had this in place, how would this case have been, been a little bit different? Oh, well, we, at this point, we don't know how, the, how it would have been, other than that we would know that, the, they, that they would know that their actions could be looked at with a fine-tooth comb by somebody representing the public, which can't happen right now. Oh, so I so what I'm understanding is then because I've read the ordinance several times, yeah. and the, and the yeah. feeling, the feeling I get from it is that the idea is is that when something like this happens, it goes to like a committee, and now along with the law enforcement, they are also doing their own investigation while they're invested. So it's like That's, it's like yeah. there's two things working side by side. Right. If you think you're not getting enough information, you can subpoena all kinds of information. That, the, that right now the sheriff might not give you. And also the, the knowledge that you can be looked at in that way means that you might not do the things you would normally do. And so the other function of Iolero is to look at the policy of the sheriff's office and make recommendations to make them better. For instance, if you read the Press Democrat today, you will see that it says that Sheriff Essex says, we regularly review our use of force policies, blah, 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 blah. Well, the Community Advisory Council, which has no power as part of the IOL, made a very, very comprehensive recommendation to the Sheriff's Office on reviewing and changing its use of force policies based upon best practices as studied all over this country. And he said, that's too high a standard for us. We can't do that. We're a poor little country sheriff's office, and we can't do it. And he rejected it all. Really? A poor country sheriff's office? They're armed armed like the military. Yeah, we're so rural here. We need to be compared to other rural sheriff's offices, which are terribly, terribly conservative all across this country. Sheriff's offices, there's actually a move to eliminate sheriff's offices because they're so bad. So there's no subpoena party or no subpoena power no. at all? No. So this this ordinance will give subpoena power, independent investigatory power, more money to actually create, you know, do study um, better policies and make better recommendations. There's a great deal in here, and it's being fought because it could be so effective. And I want to make a point that it is not separate from the concept of defunding, which is being talked about now, about taking money away from law enforcement agencies and shifting them to other agencies that can better handle, say, domestic abuse and stuff. They can go hand in hand. It's a wonderful combination. Well, it's, 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 it's really a challenging time, and especially right now with the pandemic. Now, I know that you hit the streets. I remember, I mean, we had a big party 
had, had a wonderful and a wonderful farm. It was it was really exciting that we were going. You were going to launch this whole petition thing. I remember Ken and yeah. I were there. We were we were one of the mm-hmm. we, we were one of the first few people that signed the petition. And and I, I have to say, I, I was very proud of everybody how they came together and how they decided to do this. And it's citizen action. And and right now, you know, it's real important. I, I read a little thing from uh, what my niece Yulon wrote, and one of the things she talks about it. it further on in this letter about, you know, sign petitions, you know, get active, read, watch television, understand what's going on in community. So how are you working this now? How are you, what do you, what is your goal right now? What are you going to try to do? I know there are, to me, from what I've been reading, there are two phases. It could either go, point number one, the supervisors approve it to go on the ballot, which is going to end up costing us a little mo- a little bit more money again. Uh, right. Point number two, they can just adopt it. They can vote on it. They can adopt it, and it's in place. It's, it, there's no yeah. there's no money or, or, or monetary thing going out to the public, and we can get it into place. So tell us what, what you're doing and how you're trying to accomplish this. I know there's something going on online, and let people right. know how they can get a hold of you, how they can, uh, how they can sign or, or be part of this. Right. So... Um the, we have decided to have an online petition to the Board of Supervisors telling them we would like them to put it on the ballot because the only form of direct democracy available to the public is the initiative process. There's no other way we have any control over what, what goes on to our ballot. And that's disappeared because... We cannot go out and collect signatures, which is the mechanism for doing that. So we are asking the Board of Supervisors to either put it on the ballot themselves so we can vote on it in November or to pass it themselves, in which case it, it, it becomes um, the law of the county. Uh, we actually know that the um, sheriff will, will try to sue no matter what happens. But um, we're going to have to deal with that. You know, they'll waste our money again. Susan, let me ask you a question. 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 You know, when you say the sheriff's going to sue. What I don't understand, I mean, I put my hat on if I were a law enforcement officer, particularly what's going on today. One of the best protections could be to have an oversight so people are aware of what's going on. It's not a he said, she said, I said, and all these different things going on, but you actually have something from the public. Why would they resist that? Well, I think that most organizations resist change from the outside. I don't think this is unique to sheriff's offices. Um, we just are concentrating on it because they sort of have a, you know, they have a life and death um, power over us right the power of the gun (laughs) that's right so it's it's pretty it's kind of human nature to say we've worked out our system uh we think it works we're sticking by it you people don't know what you're talking about you're not within our organization and so i i think it's just lot lots of organizations would would react in the same way well, let's, um, let's, let's, let's end the segment at this point. No, and let me just, I want to, yeah, I want to give the connect, you know, where people can find information. Yeah, of course. That's what that, so that's this, the next, wait, wait, wait. That's yeah, the next okay. question. Give us our okay. website and how they can maybe email you if they have any questions or is there a contact person and give, just give us the whole skinny. Okay. 
Well, we have created a website, and it is SOCO, uh, for Sonoma County, S-O-C-O, EffectiveOversight.org. And it has the initiative on it and all the groups that have endorsed it and the history of how this came into being, how Iolero was created. The whole history of this is there. And also there is a link to the petition to the Board of Supervisors. It's at change.org uh, petition, and it's got a very long name, so I'd rather not repeat it. <laughs> um that it's easier to just go to the website. So that's so link, that's link to it. The SoCo Effective Oversight dot org has link within it to sign the petition. So as of this morning, um, the, the, the let's see, after six days, we have over five thousand signatures. Oh point. my God, that is fantastic! Over yeah. five thousand signatures. Thank you, all those people yeah. that are signing. Yeah. And you know, to the you know to the sheriff's department or to if they happen to be listening, you know, when you think about stuff like this, it's really for their best interest also. Yeah. That maybe to start thinking about. I mean, we're the world is changing, and we're we're all you know. One of the themes that has come up more and more and more is we're all in this to together and mm-hmm. and so the better the more initiatives we have the more rules that we have the more you know the more things that are in place that'll help us the easier it is not only for just the citizens but also for the law enforcement well we've come to the Correct. end of the segment my love and you want to give it yeah. give us uh, any last words and also give us the website one more time okay uh, well it's socoeffectiveoversight.org i hope people will sign i hope people will understand that this um, reform, you know, sometimes reform is denigrated, and I've done it myself. Um, but this goes hand in hand w- with the defunding, and they can work together. And so people should consider that. And I would also hope you would say hello to Kim Hester Williams for me because I've been in classes with her, and I love her, and I want her as much time as she needs on your show (laughs) well anyway susan lamont i want to thank you for the bottom of my heart for all your activism and all that you try to do for this community i mean you know they call us all kinds of names but the whole idea is we want to have a better place to live a better place for our children and a better future for all of us and thank you for always providing the forum to get the to get the word out Oh, thank you, Susan. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And I will say hello to Kim. In fact, like last night, yeah. if your ears must have been buzzing because we were talking about you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so thank you once again, okay. my friend. Uh-huh. Thank you. Oh, my God. We need more people like Susan Lamont in the world. I mean, she's dedicated. She's commitment. She's committed. You know, sometimes I don't always agree what she says, but one thing I know, she's very committed and very powerful. And it's interesting. You know, we had a new election with a new sheriff, and we've had so many incidents as he'd been in office. And it was really interesting when they were doing the election, and we heard uh, Mark Essex, he's our new sheriff, uh, when he heard him talking, Susan and I would look at each other and say, didn't you say that or did I say that? So, I mean, come on, Mark. You know, we need a better community. And we know once you put your mind to it, you can help and you can make it happen. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Anyway, lots to think about. And we're going to take a musical break. And I found this wonderful song by a woman by the name of Lovely Hamilton called 
Black Lives Matter, so important, Black Lives Matter. I mean, never in my life did I ever think that I would look at a, a film for eight, almost 15 minutes it was on, but for eight minutes and 46 seconds. They actually had a film uh, that I saw on Facebook that they actually had the time. So I could feel, I could feel what it was like eight minutes and 46 seconds. And Dr. Uh, Al Sharpton, during the funeral, he had us stand for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I'll tell you something, it is torture, folks. It is torture. And I cannot believe in my lifetime that I watched television and I saw something as horrific as that. When you watch the video, you can actually see the breath go out of this man. I mean, just think, if that was your husband, your brother, your your best friend, I mean, come on. So, you know, let us let me give you that website again to sign the petition, so, S-O-C-O, EffectiveOversight.org. And congratulations to the group. They already got over 5,000 signatures. That's amazing. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a musical break. And when we return, spending the rest of the hour with me will be Dr. Kim Hester-Williams, a professor of literature at Sonoma State University. She teaches African-American literature from the early to the contemporary uh, period. We will be talking about feminism and its impact and changes that are happening today. We've been let down again But we're hopeful and justice will end Black lives matter I sing, I sing it loud through the tears In hearts that shattered we matter Stand for what is righteous And with truth on our side We must lift our voice and say Black lives matter We sing, we sing and laugh Stand in power, I stand in power We matter We met. 
We need justice now. We need equality now. We need love right now. We need peace right now. We need truth right now. We need sovereignty now. We need justice now. We need equality now. We need love right now. We need peace right now. We need truth right now. We need sovereignty now. That song that you were listening to was Black Lives Matter, sung by Lovely Hamilton. I love that name, Lovely Hamilton. I mean, that's just amazing. For you folks just joining us in, you are listening to KBBF 89.1 FM, Calistoga, Santa Rosa. And I want to remind my listeners, the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of KBBF, its board of directors, its members, or women's spaces. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz. And without further ado, I want to introduce my next guest. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Kim Hester-Williams. Good morning, Kim. How are you? Good morning, Elaine. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Oh, just doing great. Well, Professor Hess, uh, Professor Williams is a professor of English and American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University, and I really want to welcome you once again. And this is part two. And you know, last 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 time we gave a really beautiful, beautiful overview of who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, I I'd rather as a guest just to let folks know a little bit about you, a little bit about your education and your background, if you don't mind. Oh, of course. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me on your wonderful show. I love the the women's spaces. It's just such a beautiful um, sentiment and a beautiful um, gathering that you have here um, on air. So I want to thank you for that. And uh, I, I will say that, um, as I said before, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Boston, but I grew up in um, Los Angeles proper. I like to say below Baldwin Hills, and um, I went to West L.A. Community College, which was my first introdu- introduction to to literature. Really, truly, the love of 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 the word and you know reading and ideas and the imagination. Um, and I had a quite a vibrant imagination uh, as I do now. <laughs> Um, and um, being a child who was bused um, to a white suburb, a suburb, excuse me, a white suburb, um, I I was fascinated by difference, by seeing people who were different than me. When I, I grew up in a neighborhood of African Americans and Latinx, um, you know, residents, and we didn't really see very many white people until I was bused. So then I went to West L.A. Community College, and I saw more white people, and then I decided to go to UC Santa Cruz to get my bachelor's in literature, um, English literature, and, and that was a completely different world because I was one, uh, we used to say at UC Santa Cruz back in the 80s that there were more deer than black people. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so that was quite uh, an education in, in many ways for me and, and quite an experience. 
Um, and then I uh, took a break. I, I worked at UC Santa Cruz. I lived in Santa Cruz with my husband for quite some time, a long time, over a decade. Um, but after we graduated, we, we lived there and we lived on campus as proctors. Dorm mom and mom and dads is what you know. Another way to think about that, um, taking care of the residents. And then I decided I Angela Davis came to UC Santa Cruz. She was hired in the History of Consciousness Department, and I got to know her a little bit and spend some time with her. And I told her that I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to actually wanted to go to the PhD program in History of Consciousness because that's where she was teaching at the time and I might add here that you'll love this fact that one of my favorite teachers at UC Santa Cruz was also Bettina um, Epthaker who was a, uh, taught feminist um, studies and, and she really changed my life because in that um, introduction to feminist studies class um, I learned so much about um, the relationship between racial oppression and gender oppression things that I had never heard and, and, and thought of before at all. Um, and so the combination of, of Bettina and then Angela just made me want to teach. I had, uh, you know, uh, just a passion for um, sharing the love of learning and the enlightenment and the, uh, the empowerment that comes from learning, which is what I, I really got from Bettina and from Angela that, you know, um, putting together a passion for making the world a better place for everybody, for all people, a recognition of the historical oppression of women, of people of color, um, of black people in particular, uh, the responsibility to do something about it and to teach it to other people uh, motivated me to go back um, to get my Ph.D., Amazing, amazing story. You know, I, I was quoting, I don't know if you heard the beginning of the show, but I was quoting some uh, letter that I received from my uh, niece, Yulon, uh, in Los Angeles. And one of the, one of the, one of the parts that she writes, she says, educate yourself, read, watch movies, learn history. <laughs> Yes, you know, absolutely. It's really, so before we, before, I mean, what an interesting, what you got your PhD in, in, what was your PhD in? Well, as I said, I, I wanted, uh, and I was really encouraging, I was encouraging Angela Davis, if you can believe that, um, that, that I would be a really good candidate for the History of Consciousness PhD at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and she was a faculty member in that program. But she said, no, you need to leave Santa Cruz. You need to apply to places outside of Santa Cruz. You need to broaden your horizon and your scope. Um, and so I ended up applying all over. I got accepted to the University of Chicago, and I got accepted into UC San Diego's literature program. Um, the University of Chicago was a traditional English PhD, but the University of um, California at San Diego, UC San Diego, was a literature program that was based in cultural studies. Um, and critical race studies and critical gender studies. And I decided to go there. They called me. They were very excited to have me. And I can't tell you, the people that I work with, Lisa Lowe, um, Andrew Seal, George Lipsitz, Rosara Sanchez, Kelly oh. Streeby, uh, the, those were the people on my committee. And Francis Harper, who left eventually, and so, you know, um, I, I had another dissertation advisor, but she she was my initial. Um, the, the the Francis Harper. Um, 
no, I, I'm sorry. Um, no, not not the Francis Harper because that that obviously wouldn't wouldn't make any sense. Um, no, um, I, it was. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, that, that, I'm, no, that's okay. It, it, I, I threw but you off with that. Um, and um, so I was Andrew Seale and um, just so many wonderful people. George Lipsis, I really have to say, who um, does whiteness studies and critical race studies and ethnic studies. He's at UC Santa Barbara. And he was just, um, he really, to see uh, white scholars so dedicated to critical race studies and to black studies, um, it was just, and we, we're still friends to this day. I mean, it was so, it's always so encouraging to see white people understanding, working hard to understand, and to work on behalf of the end of racial oppression. Well, let's, let's, um, let, let's end that thought here and let's, let me ask you a question here before we begin with the other, the other parts about what you are doing at Sonoma State and some of the other things we want to cover here. But before we begin, I'd like, I just, you know, this is a real volatile time. And I would like to know as an African American woman, as a mother, you know, as a wife, as an educator, what are your feelings about the recent events that took place? You know, the brutal, I mean, I still, my, my mind is still riveting after watching this, this final t- uh, tape that had on YouTube that had actually the time with uh, Mr. George Floyd. And then this wonderful, this beautiful woman who was actually, an, uh, you know, worked in, it was working with people with, uh, the pan- during the pandemic, Brianna Taylor. And then Aubrey, uh, Amand, I hope I don't destroy his name, Aubrey, you know, running down the street, be, you know, just running, and then all of a sudden being confronted by these people. All these three unnecessary and unexcusable events. How, how do you feel? What does that do to you, as, particularly as an educator, having to work with your students and all that? Um, so... I'm going to circle back around and correct myself with um, the reason I had my dissertation, um, my original dissertation professor's name wrong is because she is a Frances Harper scholar, and her name is Frances Foster. Foster. So that's why it got a little bit, um, you know, tripped up there. But I I want to give a shout out to Frances Foster, who did all of this work on Frances Harper and the era of, 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 American slavery, which was long. And this is um, my answer to your question is, first of all, um, being trained by Frances Foster and others um, as, that I've mentioned as um, a critical race studies scholar, but also a 19th century Americanist. That, that's my actual training. Um, and so I'm pretty used to the brutality of anti-blackness. Um, I teach it, I, I studied it, I know it quite well. And if people only were educated to understand the brutality of American slavery, you know, anti-blackness all over the world has its actual origins in, you, in the U.S., in, you, in U.S. slavery. That, that is, um, when you think about the 1857 Dred Scott decision and Judge um, Tawney's you know, Chief Justice Taney's statement that African-Americans, um, basically slaves and, and all black people, he said, um, were regarded as beings of an inferior order, he said, oh my altogether goodness. unfit to associate with the white race. 
uh, either in social or political relations. And then he says, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Those were Tawny's infamous words. Those were words from the highest court in the land. Um, you know, Kim, I have to say... I have, to, I have to black people. I have to say something here. That is so painful. I had no idea about that. That is so painful to hear. So continue. It is very painful to hear that anybody would stand up and say that about a human being just because of the different color of their skin is beyond me. So I just wanted to. I just wanted to put that in there. So go ahead, continue. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. Well, what's beyond me is that it wasn't a slaveholder you know, business person that said this. It was a chief justice writing the majority opinion. So it was the highest court in this land um, that essentially um, laid down the law that uh, claimed um, and legalized the inferiority of, of black people. So when you see, when you see that, you understand that the history of anti-blackness is very, very long and very, very deep. There were laws on the books in the 17th century where you could dismember a slave, um, where uh, you could uh, dispossess a slave, uh, an, an enslaved person, um, of all of their possessions and give those possessions to white poor people and to churches. Um, so sounds, thereby, it sounds, it sounds like the Nazis in Germany. I, I, I make that comparison all the time. I will have to say that um, I, one of my shows, my guilty um, pleasures now, is watching The Hunters, which is a, a fictional account of this band of people who are hunting um, Nazis um, that are living in the U.S. that have come and, and hidden out in the U.S. and neo-Nazis. Um, and so there, there's a correlation there to be sure. And, and anti, people say, well, why do you say all, black lives matter? All lives matter. Black lives matter is a movement at, about anti-blackness, about the pervasiveness of anti-blackness. And anti-blackness actually does trigger and it does serve as a catalyst for all these other kinds of hatreds. If you think about Latinx children being caged, being imprisoned, babies being imprisoned, some of those practices go directly to the history of slavery, directly to the practices um, that happened for hundreds of years in this country. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to say this, you know, white, the, the institutions in this country, the systemic racism in this country, They've had a lot of practice. (laughs) They know how to institute policies, uh, anti-racist policies, and to do them under the cover of the law. And so what do I think about Ahmaud Arbery? What do I think about um, George Floyd? What do I think about Breonna Taylor? What I think about is that's America. That's what America is. That's what it's been. That's why we have all these extra legal killings. Can you say lynching? These are extra legal and in some cases legal assassinations, legal lynchings, legal. These are working under the cover of the law. This officer had his hands in his pocket because he was comfortable with what he was doing. He felt completely 
within his right to go back to the Taney decision of 1857. He, he, George Floyd had no right, which that officer was bound to respect. Oh, it's you know when you tell the story, you know it it's just it's just riveting to me. I mean, it's it's so it's so painful. I mean, to be honest with you, I know for myself, I was brought up I was brought up as a Jewish person. You know, I had to, I put my I put my religion aside because of the prejudice and the anti-Semitism. But one thing I recognize more than anything, I could change my name. I could I, I could tell my, I could tell people I'm a whole bunch of different things, and an African American person cannot do that. And another thing I want to say is, you definitely. Disprove what that jerk said. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, when you, when you think about that. Well, thank you for giving us that historical context. And, and I have to agree with you. I mean, and, and also people have to realize that this racism lives in all of us. And we have to be aware of it and bring it out and start talking about it and admitting it and being honest about it. I mean, it, you know, you, you have to. I mean, I'm thinking of that woman that made that phone call because this man asked her to leash her dog, but he happened to be African-American, and then she went into this whole gyration and actually tells him that she knows that she can do something. I mean, that was pathetic to me. Well, uh, the next question I have for you is, is that it was really intriguing, and, you know, I can tell we're all going to, we're already going to run out of time with all the other stuff we need to talk about. I'll have you as a regular. Something like that, Kim, I mean, you're just, you're just, it's just amazing, the information that you bring forward. Well, you talk about there are several landmark publications that celebrating 40 years since publication. And one of them is called This Bridge Called My Back. And all women are white. All blacks are men. But some of us are brave. Yes. You know, these publications, well, you know, what, what is it? What is it about them that you are so proud about? Are the ideas about women of color and feminism and the need to broaden the discourse of feminism more alive today than ever? Well, I think what I love about those collections, and I'm glad to see um, Feminist Studies um, now having a call for papers to celebrate these landmark publications, is the intersectionality before the word. The word, of course, we talked about last time, intersectionality is coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. But I think Crenshaw... Yeah, give, the, give, the defi- give the definition again. Um, intersectionality is the idea that um, that oppressions are layered for certain populations. So a black woman has not only to worry about racism, but has to also worry about sexism and, by the way, sexual assault, um, has to worry about um, economic disadvantage, has to worry about layers of impress- uh, oppression, what they call intersections of oppression um, from, um, from systems of uh, disenfranchisement um, and, and systems of violence. So that's that's basically the definition of intersectionality, and intersectionality is an is a powerful idea. And I do want to give a shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw's current project is the African American Policy Forum (AAPF), and they are doing the most incredible work right now. And these webinars that they're hosting, narrating the nightmare, thinking about intersectionality in this pandemic moment. So definitely, if you get a chance to to um, the listeners get a chance, your listeners to to um, to check them out. Please do because the education, as you and I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the education that the African American Policy Forum is delivering to the public 
is so critical, is so important. Um, so anyway, to go back to your question, these collections um, really basically set the stage for the ideas that Kimberly Crenshaw would go ahead and expand. And that is that, first of all, we need to be united. We need to have a united front against racism and against extract capitalism and disenfranchisement and and sexism and patriarchy. We have to be united and we also have to recognize that there are lots of, there are many, many struggles. Um, and they are distinctive. Although we are united and we're in solidarity, they are distinctive. So what this bridge called my back did is it is, it was to talk about women of color from various backgrounds, their experiences, um, in their distinctiveness and how important it was for us to build bridges, right? But the bridges that we build are, are built on our oppression. It's, it's, you know, people often say, students say to me, oh, this class was so wonderful. I love this class on Tony Morrison. I love this African-American literature class. It's so powerful. You know, I, I almost wish that I didn't have to teach what I teach because, um, I, I, you know, I wish it didn't exist. It, this is being, this is built on our backs. Um, you know, this, the Black Lives Matter movement, by the way, Napa did a beautiful protest yesterday, peaceful protest, led by young people, young people of color in Napa. It was just incredible. And there, but there were so many white, white allies out, out there. Uh, but you know, the, the young people kept saying, we don't want to be back here 10 years from now. We don't want to have to keep doing this over and over again. I have my doubts, Elaine, um, after 401 years. I have my doubts that we won't be back here 10 years from now. Um, but this collection is a collection by young poets, young artists, um, Sherry Moraga, you know, people who were coming together to say, enough is enough. We're tired of you walking on our backs. We're tired of you ignoring um, what you have done, turning a blind eye to our, our oppression. And we are going to speak in the collection. It starts with Audie Lord saying, you know, when we speak, we are afraid. But we still have to speak. But really know that we're afraid. Know that I'm afraid. What happened to George Floyd could have happened to any one of us. And we well, know that. That, 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 that's the point. The point is it could happen to any one of us. And one of the things when you're talking, what you're talking about, particularly about the way, the way African Americans have been treated and have been accepted, there was a series I watched called uh, Mad Men. It was, took place in the 1960s. It's about an office and public relations and the beginning of public relations when they start, you know, uh, filling our mind to buy all these products and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden they decide, for some reason, somebody brings in an African-American secretary. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I looked at that and I said to myself, you know, it, it, it made me, it brought back memories when I first went into the to the work world, you know, that what it was like, you know, there was, only, I worked in offices, straight white, you know, no, no different, no diversity, nothing. And, it, and here was this woman coming into this office. And I'll tell you, I have to say that I admired her the way she, she had to handle herself. 
she had to handle herself. Not how they had to handle themselves, but how she had to handle herself. And it was a very eye-opening uh, a sequence for me to see that. So I just want to want to bring that in. Well, you know, there there's there's so much and and there's so much there's so much to cover here. And I have just one last question before we end. And this is going. We only have like three minutes. I don't know why radio time goes by so fast. <laughs> Well, this is a good company. <laughs> you know, good and, company. and also, I, I'm thinking that on our website, we're going to list these books because this, if these sound very interesting to make sure that people educate themselves, get people to know what the struggle is, what the struggle is all about. You know, it's not about burning building. It's about bringing attention to a very, very, a very big problem in this country. Well, to follow directly from our last conversation, very quickly now, I know this is, and, and you know, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Maybe I'd like to have you on again next month. <laughs> so I'd, I'd love to come back, Elaine. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I'm telling you. you, this is this is this is this is so valuable. I mean, I hope my listeners really see the value of these conversations. Well, to follow our last conversation, how is the current event? How is the pandemics? How how is that affecting? I know they're saying that more and more African American people have actually gotten the uh, the virus. But also, how is it affecting women and feminism in 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 one big lump? Yeah, I I mean, you know, I, I feel like feminism continues to march on regardless because I you know I had that funny clip when I said feminism told you so, and many of the feminists that I speak with have that sentiment that we've been talking about. Um, what needs to change for a long time. And so for me, transformative change is where it's at, and that's where feminism is at. And it hasn't been feminism isn't perfect, and that, that's cer- certainly the one book you mentioned, All the Women Are White, All the Men Are Black, But Some of Us Are Brave, is a critique of white feminism um, uh, in the 1980s. And that critique has continued, but feminism has also evolved and become more inclusive and more... Um, you know, radical in a way that understands that since systemic change has to happen and that anti-blackness has to be part of, of, of the agenda of feminists, um, and, uh, and of all of us, because if you don't stop anti-blackness, then the, the, it's all for naught. And so I, I think that, um, for the pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen. And I, I trust, I'm a person who actually trusts science. Um, and I believe in science and I believe that we need to do what to keep ourselves safe. But we also need to think about, like you said, the, the, the inequities and the disproportionate numbers of African-Americans and black people who have died, not just fallen ill with COVID, but have died from COVID. And so if feminism is going to take itself seriously, then it's going to need to pay attention to the disproportionate numbers of people of color, of indigenous people, Native Americans, black people um, who are dying, who are still dying. We are still dying. And I keep saying, please stop killing us. In so many ways, not just in the George Floyd way. That and police brutality kills us. Health disparities kill us. Economic disparities kill us. Social disparities kill us. We still have voting rights issues to deal with in this country. And feminism has to take all of that on if it's going to be true to its name. In the words of Al Sharpton, 
get off their necks. I mean, that was just, just, that was the most amazing. People have got to listen to it. Well, Kim, we have come to the end of this segment. We're coming to the end of the program. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. We're going to, I'm going to have you come back next month because we've got a whole literature of things on feminism and black. I mean, there's just so much to cover. And I was going to play a great song as What Is It Like to Be Free by Nina Simone. And I will save that for the next time that you're on. But I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on Women's Spaces and for doing all you do and also bringing to awareness some of the issues as women. As the birthers who bring forth life have to listen to, every child deserves only the best life has to offer. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kim Hester, Dr. Kim Hester-Williams, for being here on Women's Spaces. And thank you to uh, to, uh, Susan Lamont. And remember, all the information will be on www.womenspaces.com. And thank you so much for listening. The previous Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, June 8, 2020.